Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. Okay, welcome listeners of the Bonner Private Research podcast. This week we have something a little different. I'm hoping you can hear in the quality of, uh, of just the audio here and <laughs> the sound effects in the background. This is some uh, wine being poured. We're actually in studio at the Music Hub uh, podcast studio here in Palermo, Hollywood. And I have in the studio with me, Mr. Diego Samper, my good friend, uh, fellow expatriate down here in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Diego is uh, not only a good friend, but also uh, an entrepreneur, a crypto investor, a wine merchant and enthusiast, and uh, he's heading up uh, the Bonner Private Wine Partnership down here in BA. And so we have him in the studio, not only to share uh, a drop together, but also to talk about exactly what's going on. So Diego, before any further ado, salud. Thank you very much for having me, Joel. Good to Cheers. finally get to be on your show yeah, or, well, or your podcast. We're 15 or 16 episodes in, but... Uh, it was about time. It was about time. <clears throat> all right. So first of all, you have you hail uh, from the coffee plantations, coffee regions in Colombia uh, as a fellow expatriate. We were just talking a little bit before the show about why that might be important for someone who's interested in wine. Uh, we want to just walk us through a little bit of the, yeah, of the so, background there. So I was born in, born and raised in Colombia, in, in, a, in, in Manizales, Colombia, which is in the middle of the coffee region. And this mountains, I grew up in altitude, which is 2,100 meters, I think. But I was born surrounded by coffee. It's like, like all the region is covered with coffee fields. And the wine world and, and the coffee regions do have that that tradition, that knowledge, that family business type of orientation. Also the tastings, like you may think like, okay, coffee is just a, something that you get uh, in a bag, but there's a full process behind it that people pick the, the right beans, they toast them in a certain way. So the wine world is very similar to this. And, and I think that was a bond that I had naturally to it. And I was interested behind it. So when I moved to Argentina uh, 13 years ago, I was like, had the chance to really explore the wine world. And, mm-hmm. and here I am. This is so this was before, so this, you came down here to, I mean, originally not only to study wine, but to study, <laughs> you came to study at university um, yeah. before that, right? So I, I moved from Colombia. I was studying government and finance in Colombia. And I was like, uh, maybe this is not my, not it wasn't I didn't like it. I was just not very excited, motivated. That was something I wanted to do as a hobby, mm-hmm. like not as a job. So when I came here, I was just like, I'm going to study marketing. I'm going to be able to sell ideas, to to have products, to to create search things that are really worth it. So 
So full uh, disclosure for our listeners, maybe we should come clean here, but Diego and I actually uh, met on your birthday. Yeah, it was uh, my birthday. I think in 2011 or, yeah, 2011, yeah, 2010, 2011, something yeah. like that. Um, and I had been down here. I was working with uh, with Bill Bonner on, I think, the Daily Reckoning at that time. Uh, my wife and I were down here. We're actually uh, just about to to um, to get married after a long protracted courtship <laughs> and um actually you uh, first met bill i think it was at your wedding, wedding. yeah right so and we had a little asado afterwards uh, up it on was, the it was quite funny that the, the anecdote is like it was an asado after your wedding bill right. came to your wedding and it was after your uh, was one of your groomsmen mm -hmm. and and the asado uh, I think we were just like finished at the asado. We had a few bottles in the table and we opened it a wine and I, and I raised, I, I think this wine is cork. So we started a full <laughs> debate in the table about <laughs> uh, what was it. It was late. I think we were just like finishing it. I, I'll drink it. No, I won't drink it. And it, I just started a fun I remember, debate. I remember the camp was was divided basically into into three. There were those who were following your nose and palate who agreed that the wine was indeed corked. There were those who thought that, no, no, the wine's okay. And there were those, the camp that which I <laughs> fell into, which said, it doesn't matter, we're, we're having it anyway. It's that time of night. But um, and, I, and I think that's the fun thing of the wine world. You have so many opinions, so subjective. And the most important thing is that you like it. Right. It's like no one, no one is here to dictate you, this is the one you like, or this is what, what you need to drink. You can be oriented of what a different type of grapes or type of... of let's say, of type of wine in general, but you don't have to go uh, and it's like, this is a great wine. You have, you're supposed to like it. No, more than one time you're like, hey, I don't, I, it's not my type of wine. I'm not saying it, it's mine, but it, you can totally like it. So yeah. uh, that's the important division to make when someone recommends you a wine. It's like, yeah, it's your wine, but not for me. Yeah, it's there's an Australian artist, Christina, someone I can't recall her name right now, uh, to whom that line belongs I don't know very much about art, but I know what I like. I think that <laughs> very much pertains to, to the wine world. So uh, so we, we kind of picked up the story there where you and Bill first came um, into contact, but the, the Bonners had been down here in Argentina since I think the early 2000s. Uh, they bought the, um, an Estancia, a, a very large piece of land up in Salta, Around 2005, 2006, you want to yeah, tell I us? Think that's that? the, I think that's the time when Bill uh, acquires that ranch, which is uh, Rancho Gualfin. Mm -hmm. It's a full ranch, has a lot of history. And so tell non-Spanish speakers what Gualfin means and the Gualfin, story behind Gualfin that. Gualfin means the end of the road. You're literally, um, that's where the road ends. Like you're yeah. going like four <laughs> hours away from like the main city. Let's say Cavallati is like the last city you're, you're seeing. Uh, and then you're just going up the road, and and you end up in Guelfin. So I, and it's and it's just to be clear, the road isn't like a German autobahn or something. I mean, the road is large parts of the road are not really road at all. No, it's, it's a dry river. Old, yeah, all terrain. You're old in four wheel drives. You're yeah. And that's one of the stories with well, Will, one of uh, Bill's sons. He he almost got trapped by a by one of the rivers. He was going up the thing, and when they saw the the water flooding, they just had to pull off and. And going to a side because it's so the story is you almost lost your life because right. in this wine region yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that it's so remote that people think that 
or or not people think, but it one it's hard to put into perspective how remote it is mm. because we're given like oh yeah you say remote and it's like just an off road thirty minutes and going up no you have to have a four wheel drive you have to go up a sandy roads which is like going down the beach it's like that's mm. the type of texture of, of the sand up there um, so it, it makes it very hard very like I I wouldn't go by myself like I need to know have someone to drive me there or or be in the car to orientate me how to go up. But it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Because as I understand it, part of the reason that the Bonners had moved up there is, or part of the reason that Bill found this particular part of the world appealing is that it was literally at the end of the end of the road. And he saw it as a kind of bolt hole to, you know, establish, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of bug out place where if the world went the way that he thinks it's been going for the last uh, 30 or 40 years, and actually now in the last couple of years, it looks like it, it is heading there at an accelerating pace. He and the family would have a place to sort of retreat to, you know, pull up the drawbridge and... and I- and the pandemic, actually, it's a, yeah, <laughs> it's a perfect example. So that turned out very well this year. But the, but those remote um, climbs or locales are it's not only advantageous for a bolt hole; it's it's advantageous for growing the kind of wines yeah. that you guys grow up there, so, uh, from the sand to the altitude. But so t- talk us through first of all the beginning of uh, of the ranch up there when they first found that there was. Old so, vineyards there and where they took so it if i'm not wrong i'll, I'll say let's say 2006 was acquired the ranch and i know will was living here already in argentina mm-hmm. uh, in yeah. buenos aires uh, i don't know how maybe three years uh, his first son was born here um, and then when they had acquired that ranch uh, during one of those like going down the road and seeing what was in there exploring the ranch they discovered that there was an abandoned vineyard and when they asked the Buc- previous owner, Pucarillo, right? which is Pucarilla, they asked the previous owner, he's like, yeah, we had a, we had a vineyard in there, but it has never been maintained. And it, indeed, it was never been maintained. It has never been. It was literally abandoned and was nothing in there. It's, um, you didn't have a reason to go there, except if you, <laughs> you're going to start planting grapes. And this is a this is a long horse ride away from even the main. So it's a building. four hour horse ride or a 40 minute hard drive, which is only. I think uh, 2.5 kilometers away. <laughs> right. So, just just to give an idea yeah. of how rugged the terrain is, mm-hmm. we're, we're talking very, very off-road. Very off-road. So you get to Bucarilla and you're, you're not only in a remote place, but you're in an extreme altitude place for even growing grapes. Like you can be, if it's your first time, you'd probably be lightheaded. I don't know if you, when you went there, yeah. you slept well. I remember having some vivid dreams, maybe getting a little... <laughs> yeah, that's little, the lack of oxygen. <laughs> getting tipsy quicker than o- yeah. ordinarily. <laughs> exactly. And that's that's a characteristic of this type of, of wines. You end up with a high concentration of alcohol. Yeah, because, I mean, we're going to drink this in a second, but but before before we do drink it, we should maybe get a couple of the details <laughs> of it correct beforehand. But uh, we're looking at the Takana Malbec 2018 uh, from Legendary Guelphin, and the, the alcohol content on this is 148 which is significantly higher than what you would expect just from a regular a regular wine. Regular and that's wine, a characteristic right? in extreme altitude wines. Don't expect mm. a, a wine that is just gentle. You're thinking about they're for rough. Like you, you'll feel it's very structured. It's like it's like you'll get a lot of out of it because the conditions in which the grapes are growing are extreme. Like you, you have to think that vineyards down in like okay, I'll, I'll put it a little bit into perspective. They the highest vineyard in Europe, which is could be considered like in the Swiss Alps, 
is the same altitude as where Cafayate is, which is in Salta, and that's the lowest vineyard. That's where we start. We right. start at so, 5,000 so, feet, let's say. So basically where Europe leaves off is where Salton wines yeah. begin. Well, the, well, the new world there. wines of, of Salta mm -hmm. begin. And part of, of this is because wine, the wine regions are between the 30 and the 50 on latitude. Mm -hmm. And and that's, uh, that, that, that's the ideal region for enough to have a season for winter for the uh, grapes to like the vines to hibernate and the and the, and, a, and a good summer for it to ripe and and enough sun for for the grapes to be ready for for making wine but in when you go to to a latitude or an altitude like uh, like your Ingolfin you end up having longer summers and very short winters mm -hmm. because we are under the 30 latitude we are like closer to the tropic but when we have the the altitude which give us uh colder weather right so the difference so the, what's called the diurnal range or the difference between the the daytime temperature and the nighttime temperature is pretty extreme it's up in very these extreme. mountains you, you can have a in fahrenheit you probably have a 50 degree temperature change between the day and night right and that and and what that does causes in the grapes is that they expand and contract during the day and ends up giving you a very thick skin mm. you'll see that extreme altitude vineyards don't yield they maybe yield 25 percent or 35 percent to what the yield of a normal vineyard in a in a normal let's say or in an average altitude is like mm. like when you could be napa or you you can be in France, you'll be yielding way more than what your like the like kilos of grapes right. will be. So to talk about the uh, what that does to a grape, because I, as an Australian, I remember growing up drinking, talking to you about this just before, growing up drinking Shiraz grapes, which are grown predominantly in the southeast of Australia or the far south of Australia down in the Barossa Valley and stuff. And you get very, very thick-skinned grapes because of that really extreme temperature change during the day. And that means that you get these really dense, heavy, peppery sh uh, Shirazes that are, you know, fantastic for Australian barbecues and <laughs> that kind of food, but it's, but it's a, a very intense grape. But even having grown up, uh, you know, drinking those after the legal drinking age, of course, I remember coming over to Argentina and still finding these grapes, you know, even, you know, big and powerful. And so one of the things that Argentina has is like at the beginning they had uh, they were bringing the old world methods of making wine, mm -hmm. and there was a, like, okay, we're 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 just making wine in a, how they make it in France uh, with a product that was from here. And you're like, how does this fit in here? Like the product doesn't fit the way of making uh, wines. With time, Argentines discovered were they, were they native grapes here, or did they bring no? They them brought over? them all from abroad. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the time, they were brought by the. Jesuitas, the, the Jesuits, Jesuits, yeah, for religious purposes, and then just with migrations of the Italian with the Spanish. Thank God for the yeah. Jesuits bringing, yeah. <laughs> bringing the grapes. So, going a little bit back to to the techniques with time, Argentines discovered that they had a very good fruit, mm -hmm. like the like the grape is very good for for producing certain wines, and that's what you you find in these extreme altitude wines these days. It's like you you have very like with the contraction of the of the grape to, to with the change of temperature 
at the end of the day, it's like a like a mini. It protects it and keeps it very rich and fruity, mm. which is is completely different to to what you get in from a Malbec, let's say in in France, in Cahors, where the Malbecs are are usually come right, from. Where they come from. So this uh, on the front, I'm just looking at the front label of this Takana Malbec uh, from 2018 says from the Kalchaki Valley. So I, I had been reading a little bit on uh, the website before we came here, your website, that's bonaprivatewines.com and uh, mm -hmm. listeners should go in there and check out all kinds of uh, video footage. There's some super uh, spectacular drone footage from up around the mountains and yeah. over these I'll, valleys. We'll, which we'll is, definitely have a, a link for the listeners. I know it's, uh, we, we have a limited quantity of spots. We have like, we cannot bring like Wine is a finite product, so right, we, right, if we right. don't bring what we don't, we don't. If we're not gonna be able to have members, right, right, no, exactly. I, uh, so let's go from the Kalchaki Valley here because it, what, talking about a finite um, um, amount of produce, the Kalchaki Valley is kind of special because as I was looking around on the website before, and you and I were talking about there's limited need for pesticides and stuff like that, which you have to put into regular kind of wines. But I'm, I'm imagining at this altitude, bugs just yeah, don't Bugs don't fly. appear. <laughs> you also have lots of wind. The uh -huh. sun is very strong. So yeah. you don't really get that much bugs. You may get animals, mm -hmm. but the, those are very seasonal. So right. it's not a, a, a huge problem. So they're usually wines that are very clean. You can almost call them organic. But right, uh, like right. organic certification is... Right. It's a more complex subject. This is all, it depends on the country. Yeah. So this is this is, a, this is low pesticide or no pesticide uh, wines because it's it's again just grown in such um, such extreme uh, regions. And uh, on the front of this bottle, we have a, a nice little um, a nice little uh, sketch of the Pucarija little uh, house little house that bill actually built with his own hands and yeah. I, I know a bunch of uh, his kids were up there up and they're constructing i actually it. remember going to this pukarisha when bill had driven out there to put the front door on and he had the front door on the back of his um, truck on the back of his truck and he was reversing just about near to a ravine with the truck with the uh, door he was going to unload it and he i'd gotten out to kind of guide him in and i remember him saying Joel, do I have much room back there? And I was kind of doing this, and I said, "Well, you can drive a little further, but you know, you'll end up in the ravine." And he just responded with classical, uh, Bill sardonic response was, "Well, it's good to know one's options." <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back to the the family having been up here. Apart from a bolt hole, uh, this is, I guess, an ongoing concern now. It's it, the idea of having this farm up here is to turn it from something that's you know, it's it's not just an interest that you have for ten years or something. It's it's a multi generational, yeah, multi -generational and project. This is what Will and, and Jules, Jules uh, uh, we've been working on. So the Takana was what kicked it off the project. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the wine from Pucarija. This is the wine from the ranch, and this is the wine that maybe we started 2015. Mm -hmm. I'll say 2016. There was a few bottles being produced, but not as as a brand, it was like just kept on the ranch as a as a family, just just for the locals <clears throat> to consume, exactly. local consumption only. <laughs> and uh, then with time, we were like seeing a great demand for it. Like people, like Bill was taking it for friends. They took it for uh, their daughter's wedding, uh, and people were loving it. Yeah. So we're like, okay, we'll bring some to the U.S. 
And that really kicked it off because we were selling out. Like, because people haven't drunk this kind of wine before. I mean, exactly. As much as you and I sit here and talk about this, we, you know, you and I go out to lunch here, you know, Mm. often, as often as we can. And we're used to even drinking big Malbec grapes from here, but it's not quite like this. So it's easy to see why full bodied wines, why European and and American. Uh, wine drinkers yeah. would have kind of been bold over. Okay. This is not for the lightweight. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're like drinking full-bodied wines. Like yeah. you see the colors. I don't know if you um, you don't have maybe a paper in there, but it's like dark as night. It's like yeah. it's like that's like wow. some. Sometimes you will stain your glasses. That's how, <laughs> how it will be. Uh, so so we, they started. They said, "Okay, we've got a we've got a demand for this. How do we get with what was a relatively small uh, operation?" up to something whereby it was worthwhile there being able to share it with, with friends, with family, and with yeah. with a lot of Bill's readers who I know were, in, were interested in it because he was writing about his adventures up there and yeah. uh, around Yeah, so the many world. people were interested. And uh, unfortunately, the, the vineyard is very small. We're not able to produce more, I don't think, uh, more than 15,000 in a very good year. Mm-hmm. We, we won't be able to produce more bottles than that. And it's not uh, often a very good year yeah, up there. That's, there's never, there's it's never, never water. Very good year. <laughs> it's like it doesn't rain. We're waiting. This year, we don't know if we're going to have a good deal. It hasn't rained. Like, mm-hmm. and, and if we don't have water, like the, the vines, even though great, and like grapes are better when there's little water, but we have no water. Like yeah. I think we have one inch of water when you usually spend f- five. Right. And if it doesn't rain in January or in February, it will not rain <laughs> for so, the rest of the year. <laughs> so Bill started telling people about Takana. Readers were interested. Yeah. Hey, how do I get my hands on this without necessarily having to take a four-hour horseback ride into the yeah. <laughs> up by the Bolivian uh, frontier? And so then, I guess the idea for for this was born. Born, and we started with the the Malbec. We brought a few people were demanding. We were selling out in like forty-eight hours, seventy-two hours. And that's when Will and Jules were like, "Why don't we start? Like, there's enough good wines in the region. There's." Plenty of wines in, in Argentina that we can start maybe. maybe let's start creating like a, a little partnership with people that want to have this. And that's right. why it's called Water Private Wine so Partnership. So explain, you and I were talking about this before, but explain what it means, the partnership, because I think a, a lot of people are, are going to be interested in that because going from, I mean, people go to, you know, Costco or whatever, <laughs> and they get, they get yeah. their wines off the shelf and they don't realize that a lot of what they're, paying a lot of the sticker price that they're paying is going to these the however many man. yeah exactly however many middlemen that are taking their cut along the way but bill's idea and an idea that that you and jules and and will have developed is a way to basically bring wines directly i know this is a kind of a trendy term to say mm-hmm. farm to table but it really mm-hmm. is kind of vineyard to table by creating this partnership where you can you know work directly with yeah with the wine producers and so we try to contact directly the wine producers uh, sometimes like like for example we have this wine in here that has never exported we, we're helping him export for the first time all right let's, he makes let's, a fantastic let's wine. say who this guy is and so oh yeah of course i'm, I'm just pointing it as people were watching <laughs> <laughs> claudio zucchino claudio zucchino mm-hmm. he actually owns the highest vineyard in argentina so is Okay, so this is two two thousand seven hundred and fifty to three thousand three hundred and thirty uh, meters above which is sea level, 10, which is 11,000 feet. For almost eleven thousand feet. American listeners. All right, so 
So a little bit of like going back to making connections with directly with the winemaker, mm-hmm. it's been giving it the chance to export. There's so many big boys in the game of of wine that small producers don't have the the exposure like you to to be able to put them on on shelves in the US and to be honest, when you're going to Costco, you're going to even your liquor store, you have state licenses that mm-hmm. hold you back from putting it in there. So it's very complicated, the market of wine in the U.S., because you have the, your state laws, you have importation laws, your label has to be a certain way. So we're trying to help small producers be able to get the, to the U.S. And with that, we also have seen, this is our, we're going to be turning two years. And the, we have worked probably now with 15, 16 wineries and not only from here but also from different parts of the world but in argentina we have seen that uh, the winemakers like the money's making to the guy that really needs the money is the mm. winemakers never the middleman who needs the money right uh, and they're able to buy tanks they bring barrels they they have all these new developments on their winery they're trying new projects because they get excited they finally have some cash flow mm-hmm. for them to try new things and and that's a, a huge impact we're seeing in the in the region now that we are being able to take their wines out to the US. That's right. You know, we were speaking just before about okay, mm-hmm. you talk about Substack uh, as being mm-hmm. a kind of decentralizing platform where now smaller you know writers in this case yeah. can get up and use a platform to get their their stuff out. I think this is it's such an interesting trend that you know just goes across all the different industries mm-hmm. we see obviously you know you and I talk a lot about crypto we see disruption in in banking in in loans in financing with things like gofundme like um, you know raising yeah. capital for what would <clears throat> previously have been a kind of closed market where only the you know only people who had connections could get in to do this kind of stuff now I, I feel like we're seeing this big democratization of the market where not only in publishing, in finance, in media, in research, but also in something like wine where, okay, if you can leverage something like the like the decentralizing nature of yeah. the internet and put a producer directly in contact with the consumer, you don't have to go through that whole big vertical chain, which is kind of just a vestigial organ of a less efficient market of the yeah. past. Now you're able to say like, hey, you know, you don't have to I mean, I don't know what these what these wines would be worth, uh, you know, if you were to buy them off the shelf and pay all of the middlemen ordinarily, you know, you, you'd be talking about sixty, eighty, hundred dollar bottles. Uh, I'm telling you, uh, Argentina is very fortunate to have like amazing wines. We we take it kind of for granted because it's like we buy them here and we drink it, and we go to any restaurant, there's a bunch of wines. You go to the little corner store and they have a bunch of wines, but they make amazing wines in in terms of varietals like how many price points you have, like you have people that make, uh, like invest in the bottle, invest in the corks, and like you, they're really passionate about it. They give you the best grapes, they're only the lots that they like. Mm. And those little projects are emerging now in Argentina. Uh, so going back to the, to the point, we had one bottle uh, that we recently took, I'm not gonna say names, but we, we saw someone else, uh, a small private club, uh, I think a guy that has a, a small liquor store, he, mm-hmm. he sells it to his members. And we saw he took it for $90. Oh, why? That we were like, wow. We were we literally put it for, I think we put it for $60. So that's one third of the price. And I was like, wow. <laughs> <It's> yeah. Like, <laughs> 
the, <clears throat> I think this is something that we take for granted. I'm always amazed when I go back to the US and when I go back to Australia as well, which, I mean, these are two, you know, no, great new world mm-hmm. wine producing countries. But even when you go just from the liquor store to a restaurant down the road and there's a three or four time markup, that's that phenomenon, you know, when you're sitting at, at a restaurant scanning the wine menu and you see your your favorite $15 wine for sale, you know, on the, on yeah. the menu for $60, $80, that's kind of what I feel like now wine partnership members must feel when they see that they're getting you know, eighty or a hundred dollar yeah. bottles for uh, a fraction of that price, and, and not only that, it's just uh, the adventure of trying. What we try to put in the so the wine club consists like you every time if you sign up or if we have a spots available, we you we give you an Argentine uh, half case, so that's six bottles with a little bit of a little bit of every region. We have something from Mendoza, we have from Salta, mm-hmm. but it, the idea is that you try. Uh, some wines uh, from Argentina, and then you can see if you if you like X wine more, and then you can try more, you can buy more if you want. But the idea with the club is to give you different regions every quarter. Uh, so after Argentina, we usually have another collection from another country, and then we just continue exploring for you to try new wines because it, it it's not it never easy. Like how many times when you go to a liquor store, you just like overwhelm for how many labels you have. And you're like, you, like at the end of the day, you just go for what you know. It's like, right. okay, I have to bring a wine. I'm just going to pick up. The idea is to give you a little bit of sense of try different things. Uh, and we have the, guidance. And, and you're the poor guy that has to go around and sample all these wines <laughs> in all these different well, places. That's, no, that, a, t- no, that's a tough gig. It. It's like we also have, uh, oh, it's a, it's, a, it's a team's work. Like It's like we have Barry in California who's also helping us with sourcing the wines. He's like our last leg because he's the one in, in distributing in the US. But we also have Julian in, in France, who's uh, mm-hmm. a winemaker, uh, has made wine all over the world and he helps us with all the videos. He's the he's the, the Bible. He's like yeah. the one we go. It's like, okay, Julian, we're gonna send you some samples, tell us about this. He helps us pick wines when we I remember in he w- I remember he was down here last oh, time we yeah. went to Lord Jesus together, yeah, I think we went one for of lunch. our famous places and he was they have a big, thick wine menu there, and he was yeah. the, in, at the Malbecaria. Yeah, and he was going through it, and he was while we were all, you know, it's all kind of revelry, and we were all, you know, eating our steak and everything. He was going through the, you know, forty-page thick wine <laughs> menu yeah. with like a Bible. He was studying it, <laughs> underlining things, making notes that he had to try this and try and that it, in the future. And it's funny, we ended up ordering a wine. I remember this, uh, beast. Uh, no, Bad de Flores. That it's a wine by. Consultant of Michel Roland. Roland mm-hmm. Michel Roland is like the guy that helped it put back again the wine of Argentina into the maps. Mm-hmm. He back in the eighties, uh, late eighties, he came back and, and in Mendoza and in Mendoza he he started a winery called Close de Siete and he brought investments to Mendoza as a as a way of refreshing. I didn't, they saw I didn't the potential. That was Close de Siete. Close the Siete is him, and he really? put it up with like seven winemakers. It's an investment of seven guys. So this, that is so this is amazing. I got to just say, like, and I'm just kind of tooting Argentina's horn here because I'm so psyched at the fact that we just, you know, we get to go to, as you said, whether it's a, a local parisio or even mm-hmm. just going to the supermarket. Where I think just for uh, for listeners' reference, Close the Siete is what are we talking like? 
It's about an 800 peso bottle of wine, something like that. In yeah, the it's just for ease. Like, I have like a huge range, but right. it's. Which is like a $5 bottle <clears throat> of wine. So this would be their table wine. I'm sure they have, you yeah, know, have much, much higher uh, than that. But it just as a testament to the quality of wine that you can get here for, you know, at very internationally competitive prices is, it's uh, is amazing. insane. Like you, you'll be getting $100 bottle wines in here that are in other parts of the world. 500, 600. Yeah. In terms of, of quality, how much the, the, the winemaker is picking the best grapes, they're using the best barrels, if it's barrelet, for example. Brescia, uh, Brescia Profundo. Brescia Profundo. I you remember, have Cobos. I, like you have other investors in here. I but, remember telling uh, um, one of my wife, Anya's, we, we were having like a family Skype. I think I might have told you this, but um, we we're talking with some of Anya's cousins there in uh, California, in San Francisco. <laughs> I hope they don't mind me saying this, but we were having a Zoom call during the pandemic, and Anya and I were sitting on our couch. We were drinking a bottle of Brescia Profundo, and one of the one of her cousins said, "Oh, let me just uh, let me just you know, he had some one of those wine yeah, apps or whatever. We know that, yeah. And he's like, oh, let me just, I just want to see the price of the thing that you guys are drinking.' And I think we probably paid." A thousand pesos for it or something, which is mm-hmm. whatever, like seven dollars or something little, like that. Probably a little bit more for our Brescia. You probably pay a little, a little bit, more. bit more. But I remember he looked it up in uh, in San Francisco, and it was like fifty five dollars yeah, for a bottle of wine. <laughs> it's like you also understand that for uh, wineries who are big enough, they can they, they need to sell something in here, but most of their things is going to export it. It's like that's that's where their their big numbers are. Right. Uh, they need to keep uh, a volume in here. They move the market in here. Uh, Argentines drink a lot of wine. Uh, it's like with every dinner, with it, there's never an excuse to not drink wine. Right. <laughs> uh, so that makes it uh, very exciting in the in Argentina to have like different type of wines. It's it's so you're it's drinking high quality wines. Uh, for example, so going back, let me let me go circle back a little Please. bit to the to the Michero Land part. By all, by all means, circle because back. <laughs> he he actually when he he was one of the first guys to also see the potential of Salta as a as a wine region, right? Because with for, for people who don't know, yeah. you were telling me beforehand that ninety plus percent, ninety five percent, ninety five percent is Mendoza. Mendoza, ninety five percent of the wines come from Mendoza, and then we have. 3% maybe in Salta or less than 3% and then two other percent maybe a little bit in Córdoba, some in the south, some in, in Jujuy, mm-hmm. Catamarca. But he, they saw that that potential in the, in the region of Salta, the, the extreme altitudes, the high altitudes of it, the, the ground, the, the soil of Salta, that it's all that's alluvial sand that is like, it's full of little rocks. It's, it's, it has great drainage for it. Like um, you don't have enough rain. You have lots of sun. You have winds. It's a dry environment. It's it's fantastic. And like you've been to Cafajate a lot. You know that in the mornings it's perfect, and in the afternoon it's just wind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you don't have anything. Like no one is like you cannot leave a nap. Like you cannot eat outside. It's just your napkins will blow away. Yeah. Like your you, glasses. You want to play golf? It's it's a AM yeah. activity. Exactly. It's only an Unless you're a bad golfer and you need an excuse, <laughs> yeah. then you go in the afternoon and say, well, you know, it's the wind. It's the wind. But yeah, Michel Roland put it up uh, again in the, in the market and he started consulting in there with Jaco Chuja. And that's when they started getting back in the, I think it was in the 90s, they started getting 90s in points of, of wine ratings, 98s, 96. And we're talking that this is 
So explain like, what that means. I've never. So, I go and see it. I see you know a little medallion on a bottle of wine says ninety two or something like that. I, I mean, I assume everything's out of a hundred. So, but so wine, give, wine it, rates, give me the rating. It's a little bit overrated. Let me put it right. Okay. It is. It's great to have wine ratings, but it should never be dictated uh, as a as a as a condition. Back in the days, it was definitely like a few guys that were able to travel the world, and they will also. Uh, bring the imports. Like it's like these wines are great. I'm giving it 96, 94, 90s are uh, are a good rating for for wines. No, that's a little bit more decentralized. You go to Vivino apps, you see a 4.2 or uh, three. You think it's much. It's, mm-hmm. it's about ratings. People are drinking it and in the rating. Back in the days, it was a guy that very well knowledgeable. Uh, Michelle Roland, uh, Tim Atkins, uh, James Suckling. Uh, you have Venus, uh, I cannot remember his name, but the wine rating, uh, it just gives you, a, a, you You may follow someone as a, as a mm-hmm. just like a, someone that writes a newsletter and it right. tells you like, oh, these are great investments, but you also have someone like, these are great wines. I just travel it to X spot in the world and I just try. So you would find someone maybe had like similar tastes mm-hmm. th- that you had. Exactly. You follow people's and, recommendations. And you follow people's recommendations. Yeah. Uh, and that became like a business at the end of the day. Right. Like right. you know them, and they have like their own import companies, and they just push their own products. And you're like, ah, it's great because you do put some wines in a map, but mm-hmm. then you're conditioning what people are drinking right. all the time. And so, so that's good, but it also backfires here. Like, uh, really, maybe a vintage is not good, but the guy doesn't. Like last year, it was a '96, and this year, you're gonna give it a. 85? No, that doesn't get... Right. Like, it never mm-hmm. goes down. Or mm-hmm. It doesn't get mentioned. So, there's a lot of pressure also from big wineries putting points in the table. So, mm. it varies. Like, you can take it... I'll take it as a grain of salt. It's, like, a good reference, but I wouldn't... Well, it's one always, data point yeah. among many different things that, <clears throat> you exactly. have to, that you look at. For As always, what I prefer is, like, if you like a wine, and, and let's say you don't... We're not very knowledgeable of wine. Just pick a wine. If you like it, just go through it. Like, learn what is it? Is it was it barrelled? Uh, what type of grape it is? What's the type of uh, was it, what age? Is it a blend? Is it? And just start exploring wines around that. Just like with music, when you like a, a type of music, just go and explore other bands that play the same or similar rhythms. And and that's how you should approach wine if you don't uh, if you're just starting. What that's what the about the um, what about the strategy of a, a mutually uh, a mutual friend of ours who shall remain <coughs> nameless that they always just order the uh, Segundo Mas Barato, <laughs> <laughs> the second cheapest uh, bottle on the thing, well, so as not to disappoint a date. I, I think that, um, <laughs> I think restaurants already picked up on that. So, so they will they will put you one that it's the second bit, cheapest yeah. is actually the yeah. most uh, highest profit but margin it, for them. <laughs> it's not always like... <clears throat> It's not very wise. You should always order what you actually like. Yeah. If you're picking a wine just for the price and just better don't order it or just take a recommendation and say like, this is my price point. Uh, but yeah, that restaurateurs can read that. So we are <clears throat> going to have to start doing some uh, virtual wine tastings, I think with your, uh, your partners, your club members and our listen, our listeners at uh, Bonner Private Research. God, this wine is already going to my head. I've only had a couple <laughs> of glasses, <laughs> but uh, where we can kind of walk them through the taste. But let's you and I do this here because uh, we've 
got a couple of glasses mm-hmm. in front of us. So what are we looking for? We mentioned a couple of characteristics beforehand. So but you start usually with you start color, you use your senses in in a few ways. You start with you look at it. You look mm-hmm. at the wine. You smell at the wine, and then you taste the wine. That's like uh, things that you you do. You can shake it a little bit in the glass to get out of the all of the aromas <clears throat> out. But for example, here we're drinking a, a blend. Okay. Uh, which is, I'm reading here, Malbec 60, Shiraz 30, and Merlot 10%. Uh, and this is, uh, I don't know, you're, you're probably, you, you've drank Shiraz. Right. I don't well, know yeah, if I you can that's, sense the Shiraz in this wine. That's the, <clears throat> that's mother's milk in Australia. That's what, that's what we're <laughs> weaned on down under. <laughs> yeah, well, that's Malbec here, pretty much. Malbec here, yeah, exactly. <laughs> But what what about that? Before we get into the particulars of this one, what about the? Maybe it's just a rumor, but I've heard multiple people at well-known restaurants here, sommeliers, for example, tell me that the big secret of Argentina is to drink the the Malbecs that they export and the Cabernets that they keep behind. <laughs> yeah. Is that just the sommelier so, just selling me up the up the menu, I, or is I am amazed? Is that truth to that? I, like you'll be surprised with the Cabernets on, of Argentina, and I think that's the big new trend of Argentina that is coming next. Uh, Argentina as a country helped to position Malbec and they knew it and, mm-hmm. they, and they really worked on that. Now the, what's going to come next is the Cabernet. Mm-hmm. Like, spe- like wines from Mendoza and wines from Argentina are completely different. You'll, you'll, we're drinking right now wines from the north. This one is from Jujuy. Oh, you mean you mean uh, Mendoza and South though, and Mendoza South, yeah. and the North. Yeah. I'm just saying North because it's like yeah, yeah, okay. like the the North is so little, but I'll just put it in, yeah, in yeah. one back like this. It makes it a little bit easier. But Mendoza is is the monster. Uh, Cabernets in Argentina are just and, and Americans usually are like it's like their grape. Like yeah. you have on the right, are very strong wines, but the Cabernets in Argentina they are strong, but they have a very soft finish. It's like very lover, very structured, but you don't get that kick that you have of the Argentine, like more of American wines. And you have one thing that in Argentina, due to market conditions, I'll blame it. Other people will say it's a different thing. They don't use that much barrels. Here in Argentina, Here they, in Argentina they don't? Okay. It's, a, it's an expensive re- thing to bring. Okay. And they're priced in dollars. Uh-huh. You know, the currency uh, here in Argentina, it's right. almost managed like a little... Monopoly from only a few brands that bring the barrels. Of mm-hmm. course, you can import them, but they're very expensive. Yeah, and and you can only use them for. I mean, they have a limited yeah, shelf life. First like 10 use, years or something. First use barrels, and then you you just they still you can still use them multiple times, but you just make it like a first use barrel is very invasive, and mm. since Argentine wines are very fruity and fresh, that's what you actually want to show from them. You don't want to hide anything from the from the fruit from the from the grape uh, barrels try to soften and curb those type of characteristics that the argentine grape has that's why for example takana has no no barrel uraki has no barrel and you and you see that this is a very common thing in here in argentina especially in the north you don't use barrel or if you use barrel you use very like barrels <clears throat> have different type of toasts and different type of grains Barrels have, uh, and this is for the type of, of grain. And what I mean is like the pour of the wood, mm-hmm. how much breathing does it have? 
And the type of toast is because when they, when they have to toast them, like to give a certain flavor, they have to put some flames inside just to cure the wood a little bit. Mm. You can have very light toast and very dark toasts, and that that transfers to the to the wine. So that's so when you're having a, a wine, you have like tannins, for example. Let's say tannins can come from the from the skin, from the seeds, from the stem. That's a characteristic, but you can also add tannins in the barrel. The mm. barrel will add tannins to it. And this is what put yeah. Pulls all the saliva yeah. out of your mouth at the end of your yeah. It's, sip. It's, it's uh, so you have so many variables that they're so well as as it comes out so well already mm. that why do you want to intervene your 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 wine with uh, barrels at I the see. end? I see. Okay. So you don't have to hide anything. You you want to have the fresh fruit on it, like yep. that wine that we're drinking, that Uraki, which is what we're trying to. We're probably gonna bring the 2018. We're drinking a 2016. You see how fresh it is? Is this in... Yeah, absolutely. Is this in any of your collections that you're... So we're going to... So this is going to be our first uh, wine that we're going to bring just as an exclusive because we find it amazing. It's mm -hmm. like... Uh, it's going to probably arrive. We're working with them right now. We have the 2018 collection you, coming you, up. You were he telling me that this guy only has... 3,000 like, bottles. So this like, is... Yeah, the, so this is nothing. I mean, it, yeah. th this would be the kind of thing that you would have to literally go to the vineyard to be able to, <laughs> to, to be able to it. taste, yeah. right? Like uh, when I when I contacted him and I was like, mm -hmm. I'm very interested in what wines you're doing. I want to. It's like I can only like uh, just sell me a sample. He's like, I don't know who has one. I'm like, how yeah, come yeah. you don't know? He's like, yeah, my <laughs> my production is so limited. But so this is, he, these are like the little secrets that you get, like you know, when you when you go on a on a vacation or something, and mm -hmm. you accidentally one day, you know, maybe you uh, you forget the Wi-Fi password or something, and you for that one day you go off the beaten path a little exactly. bit, and you discover a little a little gem, and then actually when you get back to the hotel, you can't remember how you got there, you couldn't find <laughs> your way back, <laughs> maybe you had a couple too many vinos on there. So, so the the winemaker of this is Claudio, uh, no, the owner of this vino. He has some help from actually proper. He's not that he's not a full winemaker, but he has mm -hmm. an enologist that helps him make the wine. Yeah. Uh, but he makes them in in a very remote area. So listen, he has he's I guess his dad was a, a miner. Where is so this? Where is this, Craig? This is the Quebrada I'm gonna pronounce it badly, but it's uh, Quebrada Umahuaca. In <clears throat> it's in the north or in, in the north. This okay. is in Jujuy. This okay. is like if you go to Cafayate, this is probably five hours away okay. uh, from you. But you arrive to a town, a very small town. I don't remember the name, but it's only five hundred people in there. And then you just go up. Uh, he takes you up to his his. He has a little hotel. Like not even a hotel. It's like a little house, probably with a few rooms for right. people to stay. You can. He has his own. It's not on. It's not garden. on Airbnb. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not on Airbnb. He has his own like garden. He grows his own vegetables, uh, and then he. So he has two vineyards. One that is two thousand seven hundred meters. That's that's the one. And then he has one that is three thousand three hundred and and twenty nine, which is like what we we're saying, almost eleven thousand feet, and. The story about this is like he makes his wine, he, he doesn't use any barrels, and then he sellers it for three or four years in in an abandoned mine. 
Oh, so this is Minero. That's, this is that's where we the get Minero. That. It's a ah, miner. I see. <laughs> <laughs> so you see, it's like Zeller said, perfect temperature, yeah. perfect humidity. And, and it's probably been in the family since, <clears throat> you know, goodness I knows. I have no idea. He's, he's from here, from Buenos Aires, but I think his dad was a, a miner. So that's his honor or his dad. But mm -hmm. I think he just retired. He just moved in a more holistic way to go and, and do this plantation on, on this vine, which is a fantastic story. So this is going to be the first time he's exporting any wines. We're very excited to help him. We're probably going to have this wine, I'll say, before June, hopefully in the U.S., uh, maybe for May. Mm, so it's a little bit of work, but it's we're happy to be able to help these small producers. It's worth it. Uh, bring it back to the, to the U.S., and awesome. ask people to try it because it's like you don't bring no one no big import company or a big wholesaler will will bring a small producer first they don't have the volume then mm -hmm. they it's like there's not of their interest there's no enough margins for the middleman yeah yeah so being able to help them it's fantastic well mate this is fantastic uh <laughs> thank you for your time today we're gonna yeah, we're gonna oh. chink glasses uh as Diego mentioned earlier on, we're going to put a, a link down underneath um, the the podcast here, where listeners can uh, click and learn more not only about Bona Private Wines, but how to become a partner. Um, is partnership open right now, or uh, I think we are probably open. We're just in the middle. Yeah, we're probably in the, we're just finishing a collection, which is an Argentine collection. So. We're probably gonna go back. Uh, we're probably putting one, we're putting one together. I'm just don't want to say the name yet of the country, okay. but yeah, there's coming up. All right, uh, on our idea, but yeah, they're probably we can we can definitely open in spots if we can count them in. Uh, especially the the listeners from the our private research will be more than welcome to be in the in the partnership. All right, and uh, we'll have to have you on the podcast again if only to enjoy another glass and another good chat, Diego, mate. Thank you very hey, much. It's always thank a pleasure you for having me, Joel. Cheers, mate. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week. <laughs>